So this is the beginning of a new day and just reflecting on the most obvious, such as the beginning and the ending, like morning, evening pujas are for me of that reflection. Even as this convention, uh, you know, of uh, monastic form, is noticing the difference. And <coughs> the beginning is like this, and the ending, is when that happens, then you're aware of it. There's a sense of the end or of this day. So these. Uh, Concepts of beginning and ending, birth and death. Uh, you're just noticing and how that affects the the uh, conscious moment. And it's different, isn't it? The beginning is different from from the ending. And of course, that's reflecting, isn't it? It's noticing the kind of mood or state of mind or the way it is, is as each individual is is experiencing that. So I can't say how you should experience a beginning or an ending, <laughs> but just uh, pointing to this is to to notice that these subtleties that become just modes of operation, uh, perfunctory habits that we we. Uh, do in throughout our lives, but really never look at or pay attention to in the terms of the reality of that. <coughs> and composing, bringing together, it, this is a w way of speaking to, that helps me to bring attention as to the here and now, focusing on the the body, the posture, the breath, the sound of silence. So for me, the birth and death, beginning and ending, are the same thing. You know, just the different expressions that, like death, is certainly more emotive than ending, than meeting and separation. When you're meeting and separating from a good friend, a loved one, meeting is like this. When you meet somebody that you really like or love, then it's like this. Separating is like this. And just noticing that these, that this is what life is all about on the, on the conditioned plane, isn't it? It's all about coming together, separating, beginning of a day, ending, breathing in and out, Sitting, standing, walking, lying down, being happy, being sad, and all the kind of various words 
that we use to describe experience because experience of the conditioned realm is, uh, is you know, uh, infinite in its possibilities and permutations and variations on condition qualities, quantities. And we have like a macrocosm, microcosm. These are kind of new age terms, but macrocosm is, it for us, is like, like God, or th- knowing everything about everything, the vast uh, details of, of the changing universe is too much for one human being to uh, manage, isn't it? We're not capable on that level to know everything about everything. Though in modern life we tend to specialize in modern, in science and and in uh, education and so forth, we we have to maybe take one little aspect and concentrate our attention on that. So the human individual trying to be God, know everything about everything, is inevitably going to fail because you. You know, the limitation of the human form doesn't allow for that perspective. But microcosm, this this we can manage. Just this, these five khandas, six senses, and the experience uh, that we have in through our daily life, from birth to death. This we can actually keep perspective on. We we learn from this, from the way it is within this microcosmic form. You know, this position, uh, incarceration in a limited human form for a lifetime. So then, the Buddha's teaching is not one of trying to know everything about everything. Count all the leaves in the forest, all the sand grains in the Ganges River. It's just uh, impossible for any of us to imagine ever being able to accomplish. Because if you've ever been to the Ganges River, it's uh, it's a very long river with (laughs) Even just counting a, just you know, a, a square foot of sand in the Ganges River would would be beyond our ability. So then the the handful of leaves when he when the Buddha gave his uh, first sermon, there's a handful of leaves. It's it's not very much. You know, it's not all the leaves. But if you understand this much, then you'll understand the rest. So it's the pattern, isn't it? The relationship. The simple, the simplicity of the relationship of the unconditioned and the conditioned.
And so, w within the limitations of our human karma, we, you know, the emphasis like in vipassana meditation, insight practice, looking into the way things are, is, is to really uh, verify this, notice this, to see, be it, not try to figure it out in, in all its variations, permutations, possibilities. Uh, that just goes on and on and you'd waste your life because at the end of the day you'd, you'd just probably be uh, disappointed, despairing. But from the perspective of here and now, and the awakened, with awakened consciousness within this microcosm of this human form, we have just a clear perspective on this uh, pattern, the relationship to first we we just begin to observe the the way sankara is or conditions the five khandhas six ayatanas the senses the body mind the material world around us the mental emotional psychic experiences that we we have and our investigation is through observing change and nicha dukkanata, three characteristics of existence. So this is this is the point of vipassana to not to know everything about everything, but to know this basic pattern for oneself, to have not just hold on to a view about it, but to put it to the test. To, to really notice the the most obvious realities that can that we cannot pay attention to, if we're attached to peak moments of of experience, you know, wanting the best and to be happy and have the best and feel successful and uh, be respected and so forth, then <coughs> we don't notice how things arise or how they cease. If we do succeed in attaining happiness and success in the world, you know, try to sustain that. You know, is a, is a, you know, people try to just hold on once they reach the top or the peak experience and, and try to hold on to it as much as possible only to in, uh, inevitably fail because peak, a peak is not sustainable. So if you're contemplating and reflecting on impermanence, then the beginning, the ending, the birth, the death, the coming together, the separating, these are all just kind of ordinary uh, things that, that we do, you know, we experience throughout the day and night. Just the, the flow of life, the comings and goings, changing of the, of the seasons, The successes, failures, the happiness, the suffering, and so forth that we experience through uh, this microcosmic position. Now, interpreted on a personal level, we, we're, we're stuck in the kind of rigid uh, habit patterns because the, the, we attach to views, opinions, 
and, uh, and ideas and principles And we don't see what we're doing. We just we might be attached to the to the highest uh, ideals and most profound principles, but but and and that that's you know the attachment is the problem, is the cause of the suffering, is the origin of suffering. So, like if we're highly principled idealists, we we suffer a lot because. Uh, trying to, we you know we just we feel frustrated by the way we are individually the way you know the the thoughts the emotions the the habits uh, that we see in ourselves can only be judged from the highest standards and then we do that with each other we judge the uh, the people around the society we're in the world that we live in, always from the ideal, and, and of course that makes us critical, cynical, embittered, because when has any, you know, when can we expect, when we expect uh, another individual, or even ourselves, or a, not mention a government, or an international community, to live up to such high principles as a continuous uh, um, experience that's asking for the impossible because that's not the way it is. So that's not a cynical statement, it's just pointing to, to reflecting on, the, on experience. Uh, that to have <coughs> eternal spring and eternal happiness and security is a is a certainly a, an you know it's a beautiful ideal where everything is as it should be according to ideals but that's not the way it is So um, if we don't see what we're doing, then we tend to live our lives grumbling, complaining, feeling guilty ourselves or blaming others for or blaming the world or God or whatever for not uh, doing what they should or living up to the principles that we hold as sacred. It's an interesting time now, isn't it, in the, uh, in pl on planet Earth because... Uh, the changes are so rapid and and we're confronted with so many unknowns, so many frightening possibilities. Overpopulation, pollution and and the uh, the greed, hatred and delusion, fixed positions uh, of leaders, traditional attitudes of religions and other institutions that make us inflexible so we can't get any perspective on anything other than just lay down the law and, and try to force everybody to fit into uh, traditional uh, conventional uh, attitudes. Well, it's impossible to do now. You don't have 
this to the the conditions for society have changed. Now we have these democratic ideals, uh, the individual rights. So then the, the desire, isn't it? You see the fundamentalists, people wanting to go back to a time that they imagined everything was much more safe and secure, where you could keep things under control and and preserve your own group, you know, keep it, you know, so it doesn't get mixed with others, or preserve your culture and your institutions. And then that leads to all kinds of resistance, genocides, uh, hatreds, fears, run rampant on the planet at this time. So this developing the panya faculty, uh, when I talk about panya or wisdom, that it's not knowing everything about everything, but it's having insight into this basic relationship. The relationship then is the conditions arise and cease. The Sankarani Cha. The unconditioned, you can't objectify uh, like a condition is always possible to see as an object, such as you know, your body, your emotional experience, thoughts, things that arise and cease, uh, that are born and will die. But the unconditioned, the Amata Dhamma, the Amaravati, uh, this you can't see as an object. You know, so when we can conceive it, we have words like unconditioned or Amata Dhamma. And this brings us, and this, this, these words then, are, you notice they're the, the in. Theravada Buddhism is usually a negation, unconditioned, unborn, uncreated, unoriginated. <coughs> because notice how uh, negative negations work. You have, uh, when you live in just with positive formations, then that tends to be the creative power. But the negation is, isn't, you know, it can be seen on the dualistic level of thought as annihilation. But in terms of a matadhamma, the matadhamma is not a negation of anything. It includes everything. So our relationship to the conditions is inclusive to include them rather than to pick and choose and and like and be caught in preferences, likes and dislikes. 
And this is from the microcosm of this moment, of just being aware of what pleases, displeases, uh, beautiful, ugly, attractive, repulsive feelings of inspiration, of depression, and so forth are like this. So, because we can get perspective on the, we can see that we we aware of a peak moment of of when of the loss of the beginning, the arising, the peak, the degeneration, loss. These are all seen from this position of awareness, which is the gate to the deathless. It's the 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 point, the still point, the unshakable deliverance of the heart is just that much. So when you're aware, then you're actually that, the awareness itself. You're not, you don't, before you become a person, a personality, a monk or a nun, a man or a woman, or whatever. Now when I rest in this stillness, you know, the, the, um, the sense of being anything, I can see if I start feeling I'm something or other, then there's an awareness of it. It puts, it, it's the, the point that gives perspective on the conditions. So, in our relationship to condition experience, then the anatta, rather than claiming it personally as this is my, these are this is my body and my feelings and so forth, you're you're not using those kind of concepts anymore of me and mine, but observing the impermanence, and that they're, they're not really. I mean, I might have lived much of my life with that illusion that I'm this body, I'm this personality. But on reflection in this way, that changes. You see, I can't find anything within these changing conditions that I could really claim as some kind of continuous, unique personal quality. So this uh, awareness then is the is the only possibility for liberation from these limitations. Otherwise, we're we're kind of helpless victims of our conditioning. How many of you ever felt kind of despair with yourself because keep repeating the same mistakes or the same kind of reactions to situations, even when you're, you know, you're middle-aged and old. You know, you get caught in the in the patterns you developed when you were a child, emotional reactions and prejudices and biases and assumptions, and just by trying to, uh, you know, ignore them or resist them or destroy them, 
it seems to reinforce, you know, that that's the power of karma, isn't it? Through ignorance, uh, we just keep reinforcing karmic patterns. So you get your kind of basic conditioning in your childhood, adolescence, and and if you don't wake up and and really investigate and look into the way it is, then one becomes more or less limited to those reactions till you die. So it's rather sad to see, you know, people who who've never developed, but in their old age still are caught in their fears and desires and <coughs> obsessions. So we become victims of our of the condition. We we make ourselves into victims. And we blame our parents or society or God or whatever because as an ideal, it shouldn't be like that. So the unconditioned is not an ideal. You know, try to idealize the unconditioned. It, it's very hard to, to say anything about it. Just negate the condition is the best you can do. It's not this, not that, not me, not mine. And that is a way of reflecting in order to break down, to kind of check out and, and, and look closely at things that, that resonate very much as me, like emotional habits. Uh, I found the emotions are most difficult. Emotional habits of, of happiness, uh, uh, elation, depression, fear, anger, lust, all these kind of uh, conditions that arise are so strongly, have this sense of me, I'm this way, this is my problem, I'm like this. <coughs> and they kind of scream inwardly, some of them, like, you know, I, this is what you really are, don't you forget it. <laughs> can be really, really nasty stuff. And in, I remember in, uh, in, uh, in living with Lung Po Cha at Wat Pa Pong, I went through a period as I began to have more insight, then this desire seemed to increase. Every kind of desire you know, so it was like, it can be kind of really daunting and overwhelming. And the internally, there's uh, like uh, this kind of inner voice saying, I want to live. And it, it's, uh, you're dying here. This, this monastic life with Lung Po Cha, Wat Pa Pong, it's a death. You're dying. You should go out and live. I want to live, and he's kind of screaming. Powerful. I mean, it was, I wasn't screaming uh, with my voice, but it was like an internal screaming. 
Because in monastic life, Buddhist monasticism, it's you know you <coughs> your options for kind of ecstatic uh, excitement and living it up or you know are diminished considerably. Your ability to go out and really live it up and experience everything and and really you know enjoy all the pleasures, the kind of Zorba the Greek philosophy. <laughs> where life is a wonderful and you should just spend your time enjoying it. These are very attractive ideas. You know, I found them very attractive and not that I'm a, you know, a kind of wet blanket, a kind of grumpy old fart that just says life is miserable and just reconcile yourself to it. As I certainly can see the, the uh, you know, the pleasures are just as attractive Sense pleasures, enjoyment, fun, advent, uh, romance, excitement. And it was interesting to see how the more insight I had, sometimes this, this, um, the, these kind of, uh, this kind of desperation when, when uh, one is, is moving in that direction. Uh, sometimes the, the momentum of emotions increase. So if that happens to you, don't don't see it as a kind of failure in your practice or that you're doing something wrong. <laughs> but it actually, is, you know, is uh, can be even seen as a good sign. Desperate attempts, desire to to uh, take you over, to delude you. So in, uh, but then, even though that was going on, I, I was, I, I didn't really believe it either because the the power of awareness was was increasing. You know, it was I was trusting it more and more, and I didn't trust that 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 kind of um, obsessive demand. You know, even though it you know it was you know it was very convincing on the emotional level. And you did I did feel a sense of like dying, something dying all the time. The dreariness of, of monastic life. Suddenly, uh, everything there just kind of bored me and, and it just seemed routine and boring and dreary. Another day, another hot day, more sweat, not very good food. And to put up with the, just the daily routine of monastic uh, life, and just thinking in those terms was, you know, it was rather uh, like a, a desert, a, a bleak place to be. But then it's through that being able to reflect on that that I put my faith. 
you know. So it, it's uh, I, I I really caught on to this reflective capacity, ability to see that this dreariness and boredom, being fed up being, uh, uh, with with just being in this institution doing these same things over and over again, uh, I could actually get perspective. Because in terms of, of the uh, necessities, it was, there was no problem. For requisites, Dhamma Vinaya Olis was, was there. There was no lack, no kind of uh, anything wrong on that level. But boredom is another uh, kind of um, emotion. One could get very dull in routine life, you know, feel very dull and bored, or just kind of depressed, you know, just going through the motions, going through the motions of being a monk. But these are also important mental objects to recognize. That the, the this awareness of that feeling boredom is is um, something to really observe, not try to just dis- get out of it by doing something exciting, but really investigating this this kind of dreary state and bored, fed up, and changing from just being caught in, in going along with it to putting it in that perspective from the unconditioned awareness, observing that it, it is a condition that has arisen, not the ultimate reality. Just being able to, to put that in that relationship is not getting rid of it, not trying to to uh, liven myself up or make my life more exciting or or take it personally, but to use even the 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 dullness, the dreariness, the restlessness, the boredom that one experiences as a human individual in order to see them in ter- see that in terms of Dhamma. So seen in terms of Dhamma, seen the the pace and Karanicha, all conditions are impermanent. <coughs> of course, we live at a time where nobody, you know, people aren't willing to do that, isn't it? It's a time where there's so many exciting options, you know, to stay married to the same person is, is no longer socially demanded. So when we when the magic goes, then we look for someone else that that creates that illusion for us of magic and romance. Because living with the same person for a number of years gets boring. Just living with yourself is boring.
Now the, the, the result is that through that kind of, and it takes endurance, patient endurance to do that and determination. Like one thing I've, I've never lacked is determination. <laughs> so uh, uh, that's not been, uh, you know, I've never had a problem with that. Been incredibly determined in my monastic life, <coughs> but it doesn't mean that I haven't gone through, you know, periods of real resistance and boredom and and weariness, doubts about it. And you hear other pe people come and say, "Well, you don't have to be a monk to be enlightened," you know. It's, uh, that's an old-fashioned kind of invention, anyway. It's, it's, this is not the time for Theravadan Buddhist monks in Britain. I mean, it's an anachronism. It's silly. Why do you wear those funny robes? Why don't, at least you could adapt, make better kind of garments to wear, not look so freaky in the cultural milieu that you're living in. And shaven head? Why do that? You know. And it's all reasonable stuff, you know, and I agree with a lot of it. You know, I find the robes a bit, you know, they're, they're not the easiest things to wear. And, and not that I'm attached to these robes, as the, you know, it has to be like this or nothing else. But what I'd rather do is look at my own reaction to it, you know, so using the form and the tradition, not is not trying to, to kind of just make it into so it fits my ideals or what I think is suitable for this climate and this country, but to use it for reflecting on the emotions, views and opinions that arise on a personal level, putting them in that perspective. And people ask me, lay people especially ask me about, can lay people get enlightened? And, uh, you know, this is a question. And of course, you know, I don't know because I've, all my meditation experience has been done as a monk. And, and I find the monastic form <coughs> something that, if, you know, if used properly is very helpful. I've, I mean, I found it very helpful. So I can only speak from what I know. And I can speculate, you know, about what I, you know, I don't know. So, uh, you know, en enlightenment in this sense isn't some kind of, you know, fantastic world-shaking experience as it's often portrayed. But for me, it's, it's the uh, recognition of this awareness and developing that, really knowing, totally trusting in it. And since I'm not a kind of faith uh, type person, uh, the, the, the trust in this awareness has been developed over the span of my monastic life. It's increased, you know, as I've put it to the test, through the trials and tribulations that, that I experience as a Buddhist monk.
living in Thailand or England or wherever. Then it's easy if you're in a belong to a group to to invest a lot into it. You know, you've spent nearly forty years now <laughs> in the robe, and then somebody says, "Well, you don't need to be a monk to be enlightened." <laughs> uh, you know, one c can f feel very defensive about how important it is to do it through the traditional forms and have strong views about that. But I see through that too. You know, it's not. I don't feel uh, that it's, you know, I don't want to take a tradition and a form and then, then have to defend it against the attacks from others. Because traditions and forms are, you know, they have their, their good points and not so good points. But I watch that, the tendency to want to defend it. You know, to defend Buddhist monasticism, defend Theravada Buddhism against those who criticize it. <coughs> so that's a personal reaction, isn't it? It's wanting to feel obliged when somebody criticizes Amravati or the monks or the nuns or the Thai forest tradition or the Vinaya or things like this to feel, you know, this, I feel this kind of personal reaction to want to defend. Now that's something I can observe, wanting to defend what I, you know, the, the, the conditions that I've used or invested in in my life. So it's more important to <clears throat> to observe that, you know, and to follow it. When I see myself get into defensive mode, that's not a peaceful mental state for me. You know, if I just operate on trying to justify my life and defend <clears throat> these conventions, then, uh, then I, you know, it uh, is not being attached to those views is, is not peaceful is not liberation. So everything is to be used for the awareness. You know, the, the, the one's own criticism of the conventions, of the form, of the institution, as well as the defensiveness one might feel when somebody, when the attack comes from outside. Because what I trust in is not in the convention as an end in itself, but in the awareness. The convention then is used for awareness rather than as something that I have to use in order to become aware. So that's a difference, isn't it? If I feel I can only be aware through the conventions of monasticism, then I'm limited to that. You know, I bound myself to, to the limitation of monastic conventions. 
But if I use the conventions with awareness, it's the awareness that, that I trust in, that I take my refuge. Now if you have ideals only to operate from, then they're they're not conventions, but they're they're you know, they're kind of perfections of of creation. An ideal is you know, you can think of the very best. And uh and it's uh you know it's and an ideal it doesn't really you know it's it's kind of perfect in itself so it it's not a you know not something that that uh, has any flaws or defects in it but it's the attachment to ideals that is the cause of suffering ubadana So then, bringing my attention back to just the here and now of this, the body, the breath, sound of silence. And then, recognizing that if I trust this, now for me now, this is a very sustainable, naturally sustainable reality. It's not, not a creation. So it's it's like bringing your attention to the here and now. Is it you don't create that, do you? You don't create here and now and and all that. You might grasp the idea and then try to be someone who's aware here and now, but that is self-defeating. This this is an imminent act of trust. Is this this much? I hear the resonating, vibratory sound of silence. Being with the breath. Being in a state of attentive, poised attention in the present. And then recognizing or realizing this is this is it. That's all there is. This is the this is liberation, this much. Not trying to convince yourself. Uh, that you're somebody liberated, but but investigating this experience, this this awareness, the reality of awareness. If there's no self, no attachment, it's like this. So you're you're using the 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 Dhamma language <coughs> in order to. Um, Really, no, pay attention. Is it, what is liberation anyway? But it can only be this much. That liberation, enlightenment, nirvana is very natural. It's our natural state of being. It's before we become anything, become a person or a man or a woman or anything else. 
But you can see desire, if we operate from desire, then the, and that's always making us look for something. So we don't, we aren't here and now anymore. We're, we're, we're doing something now to, to get what we want or get rid of things that we, we have now that we don't like. So that desire always has this, you know, it's always, it's looking for, for an abiding place, for a womb to get reborn into. One of the Tibetan Book of the Dead I read years ago, and some of the image, Tibetan imagery is rather interesting about the desire, always looking for a place to be born, like a, a womb of some sort, an object or any place. And they say, you know, the, the, when the individual dies, the first thing, first reality is the bright light. Purity, in other words, pure presence. But that, the individual might not be prepared, but it just frightens them, you know. So they, they go and search for a thing that they're familiar with. You know, go to various levels of the bardo to to find a place to be reborn into. So you might, you know, if you've got if you've lived your life very heedless, foolish way, you you probably look for anything that you're used to, which might be a very low level of rebirth. Who knows? You could jump into the womb of a donkey or something. <laughs> So in the this pure light or pure awareness, isn't it? Awareness is consciousness, isn't it? There's consciousness, there's light, there's stillness. You know, and you're going around looking for light, the being conscious is light. And one day, I remember experimenting with this one time and shutting myself in a dark room where there was absolutely no light at all, you know, not pitch black. And just investigating now, I'm opening my eyes and I'm looking, I can't see anything but darkness. Look, wherever I see, you know, it's just dark. I can't see any detail, any of the furniture or the window or the door, anything. Can't even see my own hand when I put it in front of my eyes. <clears throat> and then reflecting on, but what is it that can see darkness? What is it that's actually witnessing darkness at this moment? And then, uh, then I... That's, that's light, isn't it? The consciousness isn't dark. But if I get caught in, like, dark and, all, you know, as a symbol for evil or it's ignorance, uh, it's, uh, you know, because in the, in the darkness you can't, you can't see anything. 
and anything might be possible. You know, if you have a superstitious mind that frightened of ghosts and spirits or that you can imagine in the dark room all kinds of things in that darkness. Possible, isn't it? Because you can't, there's no light, you can't see, you know, into the corners of the room even. So in that darkness there could be anything, ghosts, spirits, devils, usually it's some, some form of evil force, isn't it? You don't imagine angels so much when it's dark, but you imagine devilish ghosts or demons lurking around. The imagination starts projecting into that darkness the various forms of fear because the sense of not being able to see is very frightening. But then, just lighting a candle in that dark room, suddenly there's enough light, just one candle flame, and I can see, you know, there's nothing here. (laughs) So then awareness in itself this is the, the gate to that, the, the, the potential that each one of us has for liberation is through this, this channel of awareness. So then cultivating that is um, throughout the day and night, cultivating in the pawana, meditation, these are the words, you know, that in Pali, pawana means developing the Eightfold Path or the Fourth Noble Truth. So this, this, this recognition uh, of awareness, taking refuge, recognizing, realizing it, then it, it's self-sustaining because you don't create it. It's not dependent on conditions supporting it. So it, wherever you go, you know, it's, it's, it's always here and now. No matter what the conditions around you might be like. In cultivating this awareness, though I found in in my own way of cultivating this is through this resting in the stillness, sound of silence. And really bringing it, being fully conscious of it. And it stops the thinking process for one thing. You know, you can't, if you if you really recognize the sound of silence and stay with it for very long, the thinking stops. I mean, the kind of wandering type of thought, just being carried away with the wandering mind, will cease. Noticing that, just the stillness, the self-sustaining stillness. And my relation to that stillness, of course, is and my karma arises, so I, I can forget it, get distracted, 
get carried away. But once I really recognize it, realize it's this, then wherever I'm in, no matter how distracted I might get or deluded my, I might be in the moment, I remember this, the stillness, and then I, then I recognize it. You know, it's always here and now. It's not, it isn't dependent on everything around being still. So that means that in, you can integrate, you know, awareness in, in this way with the flow of life and, in, you know, through daily life. There's a samana, monk or nun, a lay person, whatever. This isn't the, just the prerogative of, of a Buddhist monastic. So it's, even though I've said this many times over the years, like I wanting to keep reminding myself as well as you of the value of this, because it's so easy to to get distracted, and uh, and if you don't, if you've not really insightfully recognize the value of this, of this awareness, then, you, you know, if you just see, well, you have to use the sound of silence, and I can't really hear it, and I have to go to London, and probably be distracted, and on and on like this, then, then you, you're not really valuing it. You're kind of maybe going along with what I say, or grasping the words that I'm using. But I'm not asking you to do that. But the, what I'm saying is merely to to uh, encourage a determination to to use this this very, this simple way of the Buddha. And to put it to the test under the conditions, you know, whether everything's going well or you know, falling apart or you know you're full of doubts and resentments or fears or boredom or whatever it's being criticized or praised or whatever then then I determined to always rest in this awareness so I see see the flow of life more as opportunity than of you know of uh, Seeing the, you know, seeing life as an endless series of obstructions. <coughs> if I get dependent on conditions being a certain way, then, then, uh, then that dependency. If I don't, if I'm not awakened to that, then I tend to feel very threatened by uh, conditions that disrupt my practice or my way. I see the the outside world as a threat. People, other people who 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 don't 
you know, who don't agree with me as a threat. But if I, the more I trust in this awareness, then the threats are opportunities, isn't it? Disruption, failure, loss. Every time somebody disrobes in the song, isn't it? You feel a sense, of, at least I do, feel a sense of loss. Because there's a quite a strong bond, actually, amongst monastics. It's a, you know, you're kind of together in, in this kind of effort using the same convention. And then I've tried to, you know, when people want to disrobe and then they, they have their own reasons. And I try to keep pointing to trust in the awareness that they don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, get, I used to get so frustrated. This is, this is, you know, wanting to disrobe is just another condition that arises. Or falling in love with somebody, just another, I mean, a condition that arises. You know, these are, I mean, and not to put it down is, uh, you know, some people will criticize me for dismissing falling in love as merely a condition, but it is. Try to sustain that feeling of romantic love, and you know, how, you know what? How can, you know, you can't sustain it. <clears throat> it is exhilarating, one of the more pleasant kind of experiences of life, I admit. <clears throat> But uh, it also is, is very impermanent. And very few monks or nuns uh, I've known who have fallen in love can actually get beyond it. But some can. <laughs> And it's this determination, isn't it? This, this really noticing, this is it, this, this awareness. And then that determination to, to, to fulfill this, you know, this, use this, this convention you know, this is what I've chosen. I've chosen to be a monk. Use this convention. Up to death. Unless something happens that, you know, the uh, communists take over and forcibly disrobe me. But in terms of, of uh, you know, um, intention and determination from this point is... You know, it's, it's served me well for 40 years, so I'm not about to abandon it. <coughs> but it only really works well if, because it is like anything, you, you know, it has its, you, you like it, and then you don't like it, and, and so forth. I mean, like any condition, One's uh, emotional reactions to it can vary, you know, and you, 
you can feel critical or you can be uh, absolutely devoted to everything in the Theravada tradition or very critical of it or whatever. But these are all conditions that arise and cease. I don't trust that. I don't try to entrust all my critical tendencies because I know that, that you know, th I can be very critical. I'm trained, I'm conditioned to be a critic. To really be aware of what's wrong with me or you or the situation. Got you know the modern education uh, is conditions us to be critics, be critical of things, which is fine, you know. But as an end in itself, it's rather dismal to just live in a in that realm of finding fault with everything. So, this determination, even when, when everything is crying out, you know, to, I want to live, I want to be happy, life is meant to be a banquet full of fun and romance, adventure, excitement, then I know that that is just another condition arising. Developing this awareness, the pavana then is, uh, gives this, you know, you prove to yourself through, through insight. That this is, this is, this, just this much. Because when I centered in this still point, in this, with this still, uh, the sound of silence, this awareness, Surrendered to it, but but not in a passive way of annihilation. But it's a very atten pure attention, poised, clear awareness. Then you then you trust and see the you you know the the non-suffering. The way of non-suffering and is the uh, reality of the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path. So in this teaching of four noble truths, it starts with there is suffering, the fourth noble truth, the way of non-suffering. So uh, this encouragement and 
this winter's retreat. I find these times very, you know, just to have such, so much time that's available, you know, without a lot of busyness is, is greatly appreciated. Because uh, for you to really, really uh, develop the pavana aspects, but then in terms of the changes, the coming together, the separation, ordinations, disrobings—these are just the flow of life, aren't they? So in in my own experience, like uh, when somebody disrobes, it doesn't shake me, you know, I don't, because I, you know, in terms of my faith and confidence in this path, but it certainly shakes a lot of you, doesn't it? <laughs> Observe that. You know, how, how, you know, your own, how much we depend on maybe the examples of others to, for faith. And somebody like Jitinria was uh, Siladar for years and suddenly leaves. It's just very upsetting. Very good nun. But, and so then, you know, if, you're, if you don't have this confidence in the path, then of course you think, well, you know, well that happened to me when I... 40 and suddenly, you know, lose the, you know, want to leave and, you know, sh then other options, you know, you can do it as a lay person just as well, and, you know, why not try that a little bit, might be more interesting. But for me, this is the whole point, isn't it, to see that, the doubting, the, the tendency to to be caught in doubt or despair or disillusionment. Uh, this is uh, this is part of the you know the the dhamma being able to to reflect in the still point. Then I can I can embrace all those emotions: sadness, disappointment. Doubt. I have. I don't have any doubts about this, about the path. So I've never. My monastic life's never been dependent on somebody else, actually. <coughs> I used to question. What if, what if Ajahn Chah, Minnesota was alive? What if Ajahn? You used to hear in Thailand reports of. You know, monks disrobing or gurus, famous swamis or that, being caught in some scandal and idols falling off their pedestals and so forth. What if all my idols fell off their pedestals? 
what would I do with it? Would it? Would I? You know, if Ajahn Chah suddenly disrobed and married a rich woman, would I? Or run away with a beautiful Thai film star. <laughs> would this, you know, that would be sad, and that, but it wouldn't have shaken my my faith because it, it wasn't dependent on him, on him being anything. Or he said, "What if the Dalai Lama? You know, what if they they all said, you know." Buddhism is just a waste of time. It's a farce. It's, uh, and I'm just wasting my life being a monk, and and uh, I think I'll become a Christian. <laughs> and I used to to present myself with these kind of possibilities. You know, is my my being a monk, my trust in the Dhamma, is that because? Ajahn Chah, I, I admire him so much, or the Dalai Lama, or somebody else. Is it is it dependent? And if they failed me, would I would I give up? And I realized I wouldn't. And this is where it's it's like a budget tongue. It's know it for yourself. It's to to realize this each one for themselves. So the the strength is from within and not dependent on the changing conditions from outside, because idols tend to fall off their pedestals and things like this and and even Lumpa Cha got sick and died and and uh, Dalai Lama's getting old and I'm getting old <laughs> and, and at the best you know he, he might you know whenever he's going to die but uh, so that you know you do see the the coming together and parting on that level of sankaras. So idols, you know, as beautiful as they might be, are still conditioned phenomena. And so this this strength from within is not idealistic. It's not an idol. It's it's reality. And it, it has it's strong and embraces life. It's not a life denying critic. 